turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. This week, the Supreme Court in Alabama releases an 8-to-1 decision recognizing the humanity of human embryos. Albert Moeller. That human being is a human being regardless of developmental stage or physical location. And why the ruling is troubling to some. Some on the left immediately charge that this would further complicate pro-abortion arguments. We'll look at the lives that have been saved as a result of a mother's easy access to an ultrasound. We have over 500,000 women have chosen life for their babies. George Barna will take us through some of the sobering research. Parents of 8 to 12 year olds, only 2% of them have a biblical worldview. With a heart towards doing something about it. Raising your children to be disciples of Jesus has to be your top life priority. I'm Scott Furrow. Great to be with you today. I'm the host of the Pastor Scott Show, heard Monday through Friday throughout L.A. and San Diego areas in Southern California and available wherever you are in the nation via live stream at kkla.com and also through the KKLA app available for Apple and Android devices. I'm coming to you from my home station of KKLA in Los Angeles. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on X or Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We're going to begin this week in the state of Alabama and a ruling from their Supreme Court. I would not be surprised if you've heard nothing about it. And it was, and it is, after all, an inconvenient story for elite media to talk much about. Their high court has long held that unborn children are children for purposes of Alabama's wrongful death of a minor act. By a vote of 8 to 1, last week they applied that standard to unborn human embryos, even if those embryos are outside of the womb. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing podcast. So what did the Alabama State Supreme Court rule? It ruled that three couples, each of whom had had embryos stored in Mobile by an organization known as the Center for Reproductive Medicine, all three of them had lost their embryos because someone with no authorization had walked into the area where the frozen embryos were stored there in Mobile and had interrupted the storage, leading to the destruction of embryos that were owned by and controlled by, those are very interesting legal terms, aren't they? Three couples who had produced the embryos with the help of IVF technology. The three couples sought legal relief, two on one argument, one couple on another argument. But the point is that all three ended up before the Supreme Court of the state of Alabama because lower courts had ruled that these frozen, then unfrozen embryos were not covered as children under prevailing Alabama law or the Alabama Constitution. This is a big issue, and it's a particularly important issue for us because many evangelical Christians have steadfastly refused to think through this issue. 
And the Alabama State Supreme Court has really thought through this issue, and it has done so in a way that is likely not only to prompt a lot of conversation, but I can hope will prompt a lot of moral thinking, even as a prompt to conscience among American evangelicals. It was an overwhelming ruling, eight to one in the decision. An associate justice of the Alabama court wrote the majority opinion. There were concurring opinions. There was only one dissenting opinion. And a part of the background of this is simple. And it comes down, as Associate Justice James Mitchell, writing for the majority, said, Alabama law is really clear. A child is a child before and after birth. And as a matter of fact, in Alabama, it is now quite clear that a child is thus a child from the moment of fertilization until the moment of natural death. That is something that the Alabama Supreme Court made abundantly clear is just a part of the common law tradition. It's a part of the English legal tradition. It's a part of our own legal tradition, which is why in a very widely known case of several years ago, when a man murdered his wife who was pregnant with a child, he was found guilty of two murders, not simply of one. The three couples whose embryos had been destroyed there in Mobile sought relief from the courts and they sought damages. They wanted a court ruling. And the Supreme Court in Alabama gave them that ruling. As a matter of fact, the language is extremely clear. In the majority opinion handed down by the court, the court stated that unborn children are children, quote, without exception based on developmental stage, physical location, or any other ancillary characteristics, end quote. So this is fundamentally important, and this gets to a basic principle of Christian thinking and the Christian worldview. And that is the fact that when you're dealing with objective truth, that objective truth does not depend upon the context. It is objectively true that a human embryo is a human person bearing human dignity made in the image of God. And it doesn't matter at what stage of development that human embryo or later fetus or later baby or later old man might be. That person, whether male or female, regardless of age or other circumstances, is made in God's image and is so undeniably. But the language that was used in this majority opinion at the Alabama State Supreme Court is remarkable because of the insertion of the phrase physical location. That is to say that children are children, unborn children are children, quote, without exception based on developmental stage. Well, we've heard that before. Physical location or any other ancillary characteristics. Physical location is key there, because at no previous moment in human history did anyone need to say that. Well, guess what? We need to say it now. The physical location here has to do with the fact that there are those who had argued publicly that if, if the embryo is in a mother's womb, then it's protected. But if it's anywhere else, it's not. Nonsense, abject nonsense, said Alabama's Supreme Court. That human being is a human being regardless of developmental stage or physical location, whether in the womb or in a freezer. A human embryo is a human being, period. With very precise language, the majority opinion from the Alabama court declared that there is no, quote, extra uterine exception to the Alabama law protecting children. No extra uterine, that is outside the uterus, exception. In incredibly clear language, Justice James Mitchell declared, quote, all parties to these cases, like all members of this court, agree that an unborn child is a genetically unique human being whose life begins at fertilization and ends in death. Furthermore, he went on to say, in the majority opinion, quote, unborn children are children under the act without exception based on developmental stage, physical location, or any other ancillary characteristics. Now, here's the point. I think most American evangelicals 
certainly agreed with that logic up until the point of location, which, frankly, many evangelicals probably have not thought through before. But I want to speak out of personal experience. Over 20 years ago, I wrote a major academic paper on this issue, a book chapter that was published and became widely controversial. And many evangelicals did not like what I was arguing, because quite frankly, it offered a warning about in vitro technology that they didn't want to hear. After the Supreme Court in Alabama handed down its decision, almost immediately critics charged that the decision would shut down all IVF procedures in the state and that the consequences would ripple through issues far beyond in vitro fertilization. Some on the left immediately charged that this would further complicate pro-abortion arguments. Well, I think they're absolutely right, and I'm glad they're absolutely right. I think this should further complicate abortion arguments. Yes, it will be a good thing for all of us to start to wrestle with the humanity of the human embryo. But there are lessons from the pro-life movement that should give us hope that we really can make progress. Focus on the family and their option ultrasound is a great case in point. Robin Chambers of Focus was a guest of Brian Fromm on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, As somebody who's very involved in this you know, the abortion debate and all that's gone, the pro-life movement. How would you characterize it now, since now that we're a year, two years, three years out of the Roe versus Wade overturn? How is it different? What do people need to know about what's going on out there kind of on the ground? I love that question. First and foremost, um, we do thank the Lord for the decision that happened. It'll be two years in June where Roe was overturned because the, Mm -hmm. you know, the lack of constitutionality in that Um, We do celebrate that. However, we also know that that started a battleground of 50 different states battling for um, really abortion rights or Mm -hmm. even life rights and kind of the the two combined. And so one of the things that we've been really careful to do is not have an attitude of, hey, we won, you know, yay, there's nothing left to do because there couldn't be anything more different. What I've seen is a lot more vitriol around um, women's rights. Mm. Um, that seems to be one of the biggest arguments right now. My body, my choice. I have the rights to do this. Right. Um, and I feel like that is kind of a mantra that came from the pro-choice side because we believe here, focus on the family. Abortion hurts women. Mm. And so we have to be able to um, look at our pregnancy centers to say, how do you step in and how do you really truly give healthcare that doesn't include taking the life of your child. That's fascinating. And so option ultrasound, what exactly is it? And I guess as you talk about that, talk about just the the God-saving important work that crisis pregnancy centers do around the country. Absolutely. So um, we just celebrated our 20th anniversary of option ultrasound. That was something that was started. Um, I'm actually the only original team member for Option Ultrasound still at Focus. Um, but we really started that. Um, it came from a conversation that Dr. Dobson had with some of our leadership just saying, how can Focus on the Family help drive down the number of abortions in the United States? And think about that. That was 20 years ago before it yeah. was a million a year. Um, and so it, one of the things that immediately came to mind is ultrasound. You know, when you see... Or when a woman sees the image of that baby inside her, she understands what's going on in her body. And Mm. we felt like that was a way to really help educate women. And so that started a program where we work with um, pregnancy resource centers, pregnancy medical clinics. They kind of, those terms are used interchangeably. We started working with them to see what, what does it take to actually put 
a brand new ultrasound machine in a pregnancy center. Um, lots and lots of conversations around that, and I am happy to report we have worked with over 2,200, well, wow. we've actually approved more than 2,200 grants for ultrasound machines, nurses' trainings, can't have a machine working yeah. if you don't have a nurse who knows how to do this, um, and lots of other different grants. And it is our privilege to work with those centers. Um, like I said, they're the heroes. They're on the yeah. front lines. They are working with women every day. <clears throat> Pardon me. They're working with women every day that are making life-changing decisions. And so we have had... Um, just an amazing, wonderful, challenging, all those mm -hmm. things. Um, just opportunities, I would say, to work with centers that are on that front line. And we hear the most amazing stories of how they've reached into mm. women in that situation who didn't think the, that she had other options. Yeah. Um, and one of the stories we tell, um, validated, is that we have over 500,000 women have chosen life for their babies. That's almost a million people that have been impacted by pregnancy centers and focus on the family and our donors, um, even folks like you, Brian, that get this message out that is so important for your listeners to hear that we are making inroads, um, and that's something to celebrate. Coming up. I didn't know it was that bad, but yes, we can change this. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be easy, but we better get busy. We'll look at some sobering research from George Barna in the next segment of The Christian Outlook. I bow my head to pray. I don't know what to say. Two weeks old in an iron lung, which is, you know, like a sealed oxygen unit, fighting for my life. I couldn't, I couldn't breathe properly. I, and apparently I didn't make a sound. Um, from the day I was born because my lungs were all messed up. That's Martin Smith of Delirious sharing a personal testimony on The Walk, a podcast for worshipers. Join us weekly to hear songwriters, worship leaders, filmmakers, and other creatives tell stories in the form of a devotional. The Walk can be found on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow, host of The Pastor Scott Show in Southern California. Our nation is getting more secular. I'm sure you felt it. I'm sure you've seen the fruits of it in media and social media. But the nation is changing more quickly and more profoundly than many recognize. Veteran researcher George Barna has done extensive original research for his new book, Raising Spiritual Champions. Barna was a guest of Greg Steltz on WAVA in the nation's capital. The, the cultural narrative now is my truth, my truth, my truth, and I'm the ultimate authority of my life. Well, it shouldn't surprise us then when our kids say, well, what do I need Jesus for? You know, he's the truth. What do I need the truth for if I already have my truth? And you just said, yeah, your life is not your own. It's Christ. Your body's not your own. It's Christ. Your talent's not your own. It's Christ. And when those things finally are, you know, in him for others, now we've got a life that's worth living. And that's exactly the thing that no one seems to be looking for today unless we shake them out of these doldrums, right? Yeah, it's true. And, you know, you, you raise the issue of truth. The, the big challenge for our culture today is where does truth come from? Most Americans, I know this from the research that we do nationally, most Americans would say uh, truth comes from me. It comes from my feelings, my emotions, my experiences. Again, it's a me, me, me perspective where we believe that we're the defining element of all reality in in reality, truth comes from...
from God. He is truth. And he loves us so much and he cares about us so much that he said, look, let me make it easy for you. I'll put truth on paper. You can read it. You can take it with you. You can study it. And that's what the Bible is. And so he's really made it easy for us. We've made it tough for ourselves. We've made life a lot more complex than it really needs to be. And we've fooled ourselves into thinking that I'm the only one who's sophisticated enough to understand all the complexities of my life. And so I'm going to dig down. I'm going to look deep inside, and I'm going to find out what my truth is. You don't have any truth. Only God has truth. And what we have is the ability to encounter that truth and to pursue that truth as we accept it as he gives it to us. Well, you know, I, I was reading your article, and you were talking about a worldview comparison to spiritual beliefs of preteens, parents, and children's pastors. What what kind of scared me a little bit <laughs> was both <laughs> the parents and the children's ministers. Uh, so basically something like Jesus is the only way to experience eternal salvation based on confessing your sin, relying upon his forgiveness of your sins, which is the whole point of having an Ash Wednesday. Eight to 12-year-olds, 36%. Parents, 34%. And children's ministers, only 54%. Uh, We're setting ourselves up for some real heartful disappointment, not only in our personal lives, but also our culture, because a culture that is built on this kind of selfishness, that's a culture that implodes eventually, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so if we look at the bigger picture of the perspective that people have about life, their worldview, their philosophy of life, if you will, What do we know? We know that in America, only 4% of adults have a biblical worldview. In fact, only about one out of 10 born-again Christians have a biblical worldview. We can look at the parents of 8 to 12-year-olds. Only 2% of them have a biblical worldview. And if we were to look at all children's pastors in Christian churches across the country, we're talking only 12% have a biblical worldview. You can't give what you don't have. And so when children look at these people as examples and role models, they're not going to get a biblical point of view. And that's why I wrote this book, so that we would have all of the data and and people could open their eyes and say, whoa, okay, I didn't know it was that bad, but yes, we can change this. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be easy, but we better get busy. Well, you know, you just reminded me of something. When I was a younger pastor, I, you know, we, we have a confirmation process in our Lutheran church. We really, you know, teach our children, 7th and 8th grade. This is on top of they're going to school daily. They come, you know, once a week to a class where the pastor uh, would teach them these truths. And then after the end of the second year, they are confirmed. And I used to say to people, you know, I've, there's something kind of amiss. Because in the, you know, a couple hundred years ago, 150 years ago in our church, it was the parents who trained their children, and the pastor examined them. Well, now we've made it into what was the pastor job or it's the, the children's ministry's jobs, and the parents don't feel they have any responsibility. That is, uh, that's a trend that we've got to turn around because it's our responsibility and our joy to, to share this incredible love with those we love, which is our children. Um, we've got to get back to the parental responsibility here, don't we? We do, and... In the book, after doing all the research with parents around the nation, one of the things that I talk about is the dominant approach 
to raising a child spiritually, really raising a child at all these days, is what I called outsourcing, where we love our children so much and we really want them to succeed in life. But of course, our view of success is not God's view of success. And so what we do is we look at our view of success, which is they've got to have, you know, a lot of money, the biggest house, the nicest car, the best education, lots of friends, good reputation. And so what we do is we hire people or we put our kids in the presence of experts who can do the best kind of training, we think, rather than us as parents realizing, no, our children need our attention, our love, our role modeling. All of these things from us, we, we've got to supply that to them. But instead, what we're doing is we're giving the people who have a wide variety of worldviews. And so it's no surprise, really, when our children wind up as syncretists rather than biblical theists. Well, we've been talking all day about the power of half-truths, and I think you just pointed that out. Many in our country today, um, they have adopted the notion that our prosperity and freedom are the ultimate things. No, those are blessings, but they've forgotten where all those blessings come from, and somehow now God is an addendum to even the fruits of, of that blessing. And you've got to get back to your relationship to God. That's the primary thing that makes all the blessings worth having and all the struggles worth, you know, something we can overcome. And that's the thing that we're jettisoning in, in these new ways of doing things, isn't it? It is. You know, I mean, one of the questions that we asked everybody in our surveys, 8- to 12-year-olds, teenagers, young adults, older adults, pastors, is why are you on earth? What's your reason for living? Why bother getting out of bed in the morning? And what we discovered is that when we look at children in particular, only about one out of every four of them says that the main reason for their life is to know, love, and serve God with all their heart, mind, strength, and soul. Now, that's a principle that Jesus taught to his disciples. And clearly, if you don't have that mindset that the reason that you get out of bed isn't to earn money, get a reputation, have a lot of friends, but it's it's to do God's will. It's to do it the best you possibly can, not so that people, you know, bow down in front of you, but so that people bow down in front of God and recognize that he is the king and everything that we do is an act of service for him. As it tells us in Colossians 3, not only are you doing everything for him, but do it with excellence because he's the king of all creation. He deserves nothing less. But Americans have lost that mindset. And we can see it in our children. We see it in our teenagers. We see it in our parents and even in our pastors, unfortunately. Coming up. Raising your children to honor God, to be disciples of Jesus, has to be your top life priority. More with George Barna when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. 
Part of the reason we are here today, looking at how secular we've become, is, of course, a number of people are deliberately rejecting the Christian faith. But there is an additional explanation that Barna is pointing us to. A number of well-intended parents have been, shall we say, less than intentional in their parenting. Let's pick up on more of the conversation of Greg Stelts with George Barna, talking about the research behind his latest book, Raising Spiritual Champions. The Christian worldview, is, it's, we're always a generation of it being extinct because it's something that has to be passed on. Our natural inclination is to rebel and to run away from the things of God. We need to be, have these things served back into our lives, don't we? We do. And, you know, part of what I talk about in the book is that as I studied the most effective parents, those who actually raised spiritual champions, and we talk with those young adults who are spiritual champions, and we talk with their parents to figure out, well, how did they do this? That's unusual. What, what was the trick here? One of the most important things is consistency. What we found is that the kids said, you know what, looking back on it, the thing that really enabled me to become a, a champion for God is that my parents were so reliable. They were so trustworthy. They were so stable in terms of not only what they believed, but how they lived out what they believed. I could watch them. I could listen to them. I could question them. I could hang out with them. And I just kept seeing the same thing over and over. It was so real. I got it, and I wanted it, and that's why I became this way. So consistency is a key thing. But consistency in what? Well, this goes back to something else I talk about, which is that If you're going to raise a spiritual champion, it doesn't happen by accident. Uh, What you've got to do is have a plan. Part of that plan is that you've got to recognize that raising your children to honor God, to be disciples of Jesus, has to be your top life priority. Getting the promotion at work, uh, moving into a bigger house, a nicer neighborhood, that's all nice. but, But that's not really why God put you here on earth. He entrusted these children to you because he wants them to grow up to honor and glorify him. And the only way that's going to happen in all likelihood is if you take your God-given responsibility to raise them to be God-honoring people. And so that's part of the plan. But also part of the plan is thinking through, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? How do those beliefs fit together? Do those beliefs actually reflect the core principles that the scriptures teach. If they don't, all you're going to do is lead your child astray. That's what most American parents are doing now. So you've got to be very cautious about the kind of beliefs that you embrace and the ones that you teach, either through your words or your behaviors to your children. Well, you know, when St. Augustine says, my soul will only find rest when it rests in you, our culture has told us the complete opposite of that. We've been told that drugs and 401ks and leisure, sexual license, all that will take the place of God and make me happy. And what is interesting to me, too, is when we had an institutional view of marriage, where the whole point of marriage was not just so I would be happy in my relationship, but that I'd be part of the family, I'd be part of the name. I had My grandparents had values. My parents had values, and I have those values, and I want to transmit those values to those that I love. 
then, you know, we actually were able to resist some of that stuff. But like you're telling us, we've kind of turned the, the whole experience of life into what can I do for myself that makes me happy at the moment? Well, that has destructive capacity, not just for our own personal life, but for our culture as well, right? Well, it's true. And for parents, if they're going to take this commitment to raise their children, they've got to think through raise what? You know, to, to be a, a surgeon, you know, to be an engineer? No, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Right. And, you know, as I put all this together, one of the first things I did was I, I read dozens of books about discipleship. And I was shocked to discover that very few people who write about discipleship in America, at least, talk about the six things that Jesus identified are the qualifications of one of his disciples. And so it's important that we know those things because that's what we're trying to build into the lives of our children. You know, number one, recognize that what you're trying to do is to develop a disciple. Number two, identify what are the characteristics of a disciple. Luke 14, three different things he laid out. He said, you cannot be my disciple unless you love God more than anything and everything else in the world, unless you submit to his authority, unless you surrender to his agenda. And so when you keep those things in mind and then you start thinking about, okay, now what am I going to do to produce children that reflect those kinds of qualities that's a real challenge. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take massive amounts of energy and creativity. And you know what? It's going to be the most fulfilling thing you ever do. Coming up, warning signs to watch for in your church. The heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. In the next segment of The Christian Outlook, stay with us. And one by one, I watched my dear friends get engaged, get married, start having children. And especially as a woman, I felt like there was a certain timeline that these things needed to happen in my life. Charity Gale shares a personal testimony on The Walk, a podcast for worshipers. Join us weekly to hear songwriters, worship leaders, filmmakers, and other creatives tell their stories in the form of a devotional. The Walk can be found on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. George Barna, in our last segment, gave a strong challenge to parents in their role in discipling their children. There is no doubt the ultimate responsibility lies with the parents, but there is no question the church has a role to play as well. And you need to set roots in a church that you can trust. Gino Gerasi walks us through a number of warning signs from 94.7 The Word in Denver. I think just shortly after the pandemic broke out, I had Alyssa Childers on the program. She's an author and a speaker. And Alyssa Childers, of course, she has her own podcast. And she's submitted an article to uh, ChristianHeadlines.com. She says in her article... And I'm quoting her article. She says, quote, several years ago, my husband and I began attending a local evangelical non-denominational church. And she says, and we loved it. We cherished the sense of community we found among the loving and authentic people we met there. She writes, and the intelligent outside the box pastor who led our flock 
with thought-provoking and insightful sermons. And then she says, sadly, the church started going off the rails theologically. And after about a year and a half, we made the difficult decision to leave because that church had become a self-titled progressive Christian community. And she says, back then I had never heard of that. I had never heard of progressive Christianity. And then she said, even now it's difficult to pin down what actually qualifies someone as a progressive Christian. She doesn't say this, but I'll say it. And therefore a progressive church. And she says, due to the diversity of beliefs that fall under that designation. But then she writes about five danger signs, five danger signs that you might be in a progressive church. And I think it's thought-provoking and conversation-stimulating. Basically, the, the, the five points um, that she brings up bear discussion. I'm, I'm going to quickly give you the five points that she says. Number one, there's a lowered view of the Bible. Number two, feelings are emphasized over facts. Number three, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. Number four, historic terms are redefined. And number five, the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. And I think that that is probably a good way of taking the temperature of whether or not you're in a progressive church and whether or not your progressive church has a progressive pastor. So number one, there's a lowered view of the Bible. So one of the main differences between progressive Christianity and historic Christianity is its view of the Bible. So imagine, in broad terms, Christians historically have viewed the Bible as the inspired Word of God authoritative for our life. Progressive Christianity abandons those terms, emphasizing personal beliefs over biblical mandate. Comments you might hear, she points out, the Bible is a human book. I disagree with the Apostle Paul on that issue. The Bible condones immorality, so we are obligated to reject what it says in certain places. The Bible contains the Word of God. That's code. That's a code phrase, by the way. The Bible contains the Word of God versus the Bible is the Word of God. Now, it's a separate question, and I'm happy to ask and answer the questions surrounding that comment. Is the Bible a human book? Well, yeah, humans participated in the writing of the book. So in what way is the Bible inspired? And in what way is the Bible authoritative? And in what way is the Bible the Word of God, not just simply contains the Word, word of God? And then the number two thing that she points out, 
feelings are emphasized over facts. She writes, in progressive churches, personal experience, personal feelings, personal opinions are valued or tend to be valued above objective truth. As the Bible ceases to be viewed as God's definitive word, what a person feels to be true becomes the ultimate authority for faith and practice. And she gives certain comments that you might hear in your progressive church. That Bible verse doesn't resonate with me. I thought homosexuality was a sin until I met and befriended some gay people. I just can't believe Jesus would send good people to hell. And then number three, essential Christian doctrines are open to reinterpretation. She writes, progressive author John Pavlovitz. This is, again, um, it's posted at ChristianHeadlines.com. She's quoting John Pavlovitz, quote, There are no sacred cows in progressive Christianity. Tradition, doctrine, dogma are all fair game because all pass through the hands of flawed humanity, unquote. Progressive Christians are often open to redefining and reinterpreting the Bible on the hot-button moral issues like homosexuality and abortion, and also cardinal doctrines like the virgin birth or the virgin conception and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The only sacred cow is there are no sacred cows. And so you might hear comments like, The resurrection of Jesus doesn't have to be factual in order to speak truth. The church's historic position on sexuality is archaic and needs to be updated within a modern framework. The idea of a literal hell is offensive to non-Christians and needs to be reinterpreted. Coming up, I think our future depends far more on the hearts of the people of God than it does on elections and political parties. Mm. Alan Jackson, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. AM radio provides always-on news, sports, talk, traffic, and weather reports. And it's also a vital service that provides important emergency information when your community needs it most. Tell Congress you need AM radio to stay in your car. Because when cell phones and the Internet are down, this free emergency service is critical. And when you don't have electricity, radio in the car is often your only lifeline. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. Does it seem to you like so much of the news today is bad, hard news, sobering news? Even when the news within the church is sobering, as so many churches capitulate to the spirit of our age, it's the church that is on Pastor Alan Jackson's mind as we walk through this period of history in our nation. Jackson was a recent guest on my program. What is Would you say the most positive thing, though, happening in the kingdom of God in the church today with all of this confusion? There's always these surveys that say, oh, people aren't going to church or there's more religious nuns. People don't believe anything anymore. But what would you say is some of the best things that's happening today in the church? 
There's two big things I see. One is the truth is being told in the public square with a clarity that we haven't had for a long time. Mm. Prior to 2020, I trusted a lot of places that I now know were not trustworthy. And it's really God that pulled back the curtain and let us see that. So while it's unsettling and a bit uncomfortable, it's very helpful to know so that we can begin to align with things that truly are correct and truthful. It's, it's true. There's a group of people that have stepped back. But there's a significant group of people that have raised their hand and stepped forward, and they're willing to do difficult things for the sake of the kingdom of God. That will change our future. I think you're right about that. That's something that was super positive. All the pain and the suffering and different things that happened during the COVID, we got—you're you're right. The curtain was brought back on what's happening in our school systems because parents got to go to school with their third graders and said, what is this you're teaching my kid? And the truth will set you free. And we're living in a world where it's challenging. But the truth is something that is fantastic when you're living in that reality. It is. Until you know the truth, you can't make a course correction. And so God in his mercy pulled those curtains back. And it was a little bit shocking. It's like turning on the lights and you see what's scurrying around on the floor. But now we can respond to it. And that's a very good place. I think that is a good place. And I think you're right that it also allows for people to question what it is that they believe and tune their hearts, hopefully to Jesus Christ. I like to say that Americans seem to understand that we need to be penitent, but we forgot what direction to kneel. And maybe we're remembering that now. That's a very good point. And I pray it's true. I think our future depends far more on the hearts of the people of God than it does on elections and political parties. Mm. And I think as long as we imagine that an election is going to fix us, we're idolatrous. And so I pray that we will do the hard work we can do so that God can do those things that only he can do. Yeah, whatever happens at our election, there isn't going to be some situation where Jesus looks down and says, what'd you do down there? I'm so confused. Uh, he's in control, and what he wants to do uh, matters. Absolutely, it matters. And I even think, you know, it very much could be the end of the age, but it could just be the end of an empire. And if it is, that's because of the hearts of God's people. So again, I think we should feel empowered and understand our significance and not feel like we're victims. I think that is so great. And that's refreshing in the world today. And the, the attitude, I think, that we should have that maybe this is God bringing things to the end and the different things that we see uh, in the scriptures and Revelation and in other prophecies. But also maybe we're about to have a great revival, something the world hasn't seen for a long time. Absolutely. I'm asked frequently, do I think these are the last days? And I usually answer the same way. I can guarantee you these are our last days. We better treat them that way. That's right. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you liked the program and podcast, just take a moment to share it with a friend. Send them to ChristianOutlook.com for these and other great conversations. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and Wilbert Flores, I'm Scott Furrow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. Sleep.